We're continuing this morning to read from Genesis chapter 41. And I encourage you to open your Bibles or switch one on if you have one that way or follow it above. Chapter 41, beginning at verse 25 to 57. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will become seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the spirit is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all, that, all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people, and shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out to him, bowed the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, you no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Sethanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven year plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, or it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the first one Manasseh, 
For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let us pray. We give thanks to you, Lord, for this word, for your word that we hold in our hands or see above. We thank you that we have it in our language and you cannot or do not take it away from us. Help us, Lord, this day to serve you and to understand your word. Remove any misunderstanding, worried or concerns that David's had during his preparation and use David as your mouthpiece. Help us, Lord, to understand. Help us to think through what we hear and then to put it into action. And Lord, as we sit under your word here, we pray that you'll be with the children as they sit under your word in Sunday school. We thank you for the teachers. We thank you for the preparation they have done during this week. And we ask, Lord, that for those of us who were privileged to be sent to Sunday school, that these children will learn from parents and from Sunday school, as we have in the past remembered things that we've been taught in Sunday school. So be with them, Lord. Keep them settled, keep them calm, and help them to understand what is taught to them. We pray, Lord, that on this day, your Sabbath, that you'll give us clear minds and accepting hearts during this time of teaching. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as we continue our morning series in the book of Genesis, last week we saw Joseph sent for and brought up from out of the prison pit. He's cleaned up, shaved, washed, dressed, prepared to stand before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the then known world. And Joseph is called there to interpret Pharaoh's disturbing dreams, rather to pass on from God the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams. That was the key feature of last week's message, how, uh, or it was a key feature, how when faced with the opportunity of pleasing Pharaoh, for Joseph's own sake, for his own benefit. Instead, what we see Joseph doing is he seeks to please God for God's sake. That was his pattern with Potiphar's wife in the penthouse. It was his pattern in the prison with the chief baker and cupbearer. And now before Pharaoh, it is the repeated consistent pattern of Joseph in the palace. Three times before Pharaoh, Joseph humbly but boldly brings God into the conversation, telling Pharaoh, who you remember was viewed as a god in Egypt, telling Pharaoh what God, capital G, capital O, capital D, what God, the true God, was going to do in his Egypt. There would be seven years of a bumper harvest, followed by seven years of severe Famine. We didn't look at this last week, but Joseph is also bold enough to further tell Pharaoh what he ought to do. Verses 33 to 36. 
how Pharaoh ought to appoint someone wise and discerning and put him in charge of all of Egypt. Put him in charge to oversee a, a 20% collection uh, from the seven years of bumper harvest. And that collection would be stored in the cities uh, for easier distribution during those seven years of famine. And look at what Joseph says. Look at what Joseph gives us the reason. So that the land may not perish through the famine. Joseph cares, you see. He cares about this land in which he now lives. So the call is for urgent and dynamic action now. To not wait until the seven years are over and then begin to think, well, maybe we ought to do something, you know. But Joseph has a vision, a 14-year long-term plan for the country he lives in. It's interesting how Joseph doesn't talk as a lot of usual politicians will talk when there's a crisis. And commentators ask them, well, what would you do? Well, we need to do more. We need to do more. We need to help more. And Well, what? Well, we need to do more. That's what we need to do. Uh, Joseph's not like that. Joseph does not give vague descriptions, but his proposal is smart. Alistair Begg brings this out in his commentary on Joseph's life. Smart, S-M-A-R-T. It was specific. There was detail in terms of what needed to happen about the people and the storehouses and the collection. Secondly, it was measurable. Across the board, everybody would give 20%. Not more for the rich or less for the poor. Across the board, we're going to collect 20% of the grain and take it in to store. Thirdly, it was action-orientated. It needs everyone to get involved. Even Pharaoh has to get a move on and assign someone to lead all of this. Fourthly, his proposal was smart in that it had realistic goals. It wasn't sort of pie-in-the-sky unattainable, but it was definite and it was doable. And fifthly and finally, it had a time frame. It had seven years of bumper harvest. We've got seven years to do this, lads, so let's get on with it. Let's not just pray. We need to pray when we apply that to a church. There's work to do. Let's not just pray, but we need to pray. But let's get on with it. Let's have strategy. Let's have vision. Let's have action and get on with it, get stuck into it. So Joseph knew what was coming. He knew what was looming on the horizon, but he didn't resort to a sort of passive, uh, passive resignation and do nothing. But the fact that God has clearly revealed what's about to happen allows Joseph then to plan and to act while he still can. And it's that spirit of action in the light of revealed truth that lies behind both what local churches do in terms of their evangelism and what organizations do in terms of missionary outreach. We know, don't we, what's going to happen. The fact that God has revealed to us in His Word, as Paul told the folk at the Areopagus, Acts 17, 31, that God has set a date. There is a, a calendar, if I may say this reverently, in God's room with a circle around it. There is a date coming, and God has appointed one who will judge the world, both the living and the dead. We know that date is coming. What are we to do? Well, get stuck in, friends. Get stuck in. We're not to get all hyper-Calvinistic and just resign ourselves to thinking, well, you know, God will save his elect. 
There won't be a seat empty in heaven and all of these nice mottos, which are quite true actually, but God calls us to get stuck in, to do as Joseph did. And in this seven period, this, as it were, seven-year period of saving grace act, we know what's coming. So now is the time to get ready. We have to leave it there for now, but we need to move on for this morning's message. I want to look at how Joseph coped at being at the top. How did Joseph cope being put in charge of Egypt? That's our first point. You see, having come to the palace, having given God's interpretation, having proposed to Pharaoh what he ought therefore to do, Pharaoh appears impressed with Joseph's plan and he puts him in charge of the whole thing. He says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? There's an echo there, isn't there, with Potiphar. It's so similar to what Potiphar, the captain of the guard, thought of Joseph. What he could see the Lord was doing with Joseph and through Joseph. Potiphar could see that because God was with Joseph, then everything Joseph did succeeded. And therefore, as we saw back in chapter 39, verse 4, Potiphar put Joseph in charge of everything in his house. Verse 6, he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Here in chapter 41, as Joseph stands before Pharaoh, we read in verse 39, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. Not interesting. Potiphar said, you're in charge of my house. Pharaoh says, you're in charge of my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. In a sense here, what we have is an Old Testament illustration of what is clearly taught in the New Testament. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, that if you are found faithful in something little, then God will give you responsibility over something bigger. And that's what's happening here with Joseph. His consistency in his God-focused attitude and in his God-focused actions, whether it's in the penthouse or then in the prison, it is now resulted here in the palace with him being given more responsibility. Wonderful, really. And yet it's profound, really, when you think about it. Just that morning, Joseph was serving gruel in the prison house, and by evening, he's living in his own penthouse with his own servants. I try and imagine myself in the scene there as Pharaoh says all of this to Joseph, and I wonder what Pharaoh's servants thought, stood around watching this, listening to this, as Pharaoh takes a foreigner a Hebrew, a prisoner, an alleged rapist. And within seconds of Pharaoh opening his mouth, Joseph, this Joseph, is pronounced second in command of the world's superpower. Isn't this profound? What a fast track this is. It's amazing. But this is God, you see. This is God moving in mysterious ways. This is as, as Mary sang to Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, 52. God has lifted up the humble. It illustrates to us, if you want to be useful to God, then humble yourself before God, and He will exalt you. He will lift you up. James 4, verse 10, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Because God bypasses the proud. What does the proud look like in a church? 
Let me give you an example. You see crumbs on the carpet after the morning's meeting and you think, I'm not picking that up, I'm going home. You see a job that needs doing. You think, oh, get the church officers to do that. I'm not doing that. God bypasses the proud and he uses the humble. We go in and get the brush pan and come out and do it quickly and put it in the bin and walk out. There's a principle here in Joseph. Joseph was humble, contrite, and God blesses him with greater responsibility. Well, Joseph's declared now second in charge of Egypt, and now look at how Pharaoh gives Joseph power and connection. And there are a number of things in the text that we read that are ceremonially presented to Joseph, a sort of paraphernalia of power, as Kent Hughes describes it. These things affirm Joseph's new position. First of all, there's a signet ring. But look, it's Pharaoh's own signet ring. And you imagine there, Pharaoh takes it off his finger, and it's still warm from Pharaoh having worn it, and he slips it onto Joseph's finger. And now Joseph, bearing, uh, wearing a, a, a ring that bears Pharaoh's signature and an emblem that he would have used to press into seals for official documents, Joseph has just with that action been given Pharaoh-like authority. Secondly, there are garments, and these are not just M&S garments. This is Egyptian linen. Egyptian linen. This is fine linen. These are the garments of the rich and powerful in Egypt. Thirdly, he's given a gold chain like a, a mayor of a town or a city would wear around their neck. It's a symbol of power, a symbol of honor, and Joseph is given such symbols to wear. Fourthly, he's given transport. He's given Pharaoh's second chariot, not his first one, obviously. Pharaoh will ride that one, but he's got his second chariot. It, it, it reads like a sort of a limousine of that day with the secret service going ahead of them or the police on the motorbikes going ahead of them to clear the way, to prepare the way for Joseph coming. And as Joseph arrives there to bow the knee before Joseph as he passes, which you imagine him sat there in the chariot, must have brought back memories. Must have brought back memories of that dream he had where people were bowing down to him. And here the pieces begin to come together as people begin now to bow to Joseph. And fifthly, he's given a new name, verse 45, Zephanath Paniah, which means God speaks and lives. So his new name reflects what he has demonstrated with his life, that God does live, the, the living God who determines harvests and determines famines, but who also reveals his determined will through his people, like Joseph here. Sixthly, he's given a wife, Asnath, the daughter of Potiphera. That is not Potiphar, it's a different person, similar names. Potiphera, who is a priest, uh, the priest of On. On or Heliopolis was the center of worship where sacrifices were made to the Egyptian sun god. This woman, Asenath, has come from a highly aristocratic Egyptian family. I googled this morning what famous names are there in the UK, and there are, there are names like uh, Spencer Churchill. If you were to marry into the Spencer Churchill family, you could use, you would certainly change your name to that name because that name opens doors for you. 
And here, this family line opened doors. Her family line was so highly thought of that some pharaohs had taken wives from it. This was good stock. Now Joseph, second in command of Egypt, is given a wife from this family with all its connections, with all its associations. Her name means she who belongs to the goddess Neith. Her father's a famous priest, a famous minister who would lead ceremonies and festivals celebrating the Egyptian sun god. And here's a woman deeply connected with paganism, spiritually a million miles away from where Joseph is, and he's told, marry her. I wonder, brother, sister in Christ, what would you do? Scripture is clear that believers are not to date or to marry unbelievers. We can date, we can marry whoever we like, but only someone in the Lord, another believer, another one who belongs to Jesus Christ. For as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, what fellowship can light have with darkness and so on and so forth. Hence, some commentators think Joseph should have said no to Pharaoh, as though marrying a pagan was too far. You can call me an Egyptian name for sure, but I won't take on an Egyptian pagan wife. That's too far for me, some commentators believe. But here in this context, in this unique situation, in this arranged marriage for him, Joseph doesn't object, but he marries her. John Gill comments like this, Pharaoh made this match, which was a mark of great honor and affection to Joseph, which if even disagreeable to him, he could not well refuse. And we'll leave it there. We'll leave it for eternity as to what should have come out of that. But can you see what Joseph's doing here to Joseph? Yes, he's honoring him as what is probably a prime minister role in the country. He's honoring him, but actually when you look carefully, he's also Egyptianizing him. That's a word. He's Egyptianizing him. Joseph has now been dressed like an Egyptian. He's now got an Egyptian name. He probably now speaks Egyptian. He's now got an Egyptian wife. Maybe he had learned to walk like an Egyptian. Just had to get that in, like the bangles, you know. I don't know. But Joseph appears so Egyptian that by the next chapter, chapter 42, when his brothers arrive, they don't recognize him. He's just like everyone else around here, an Egyptian. So the question is, is, is he now in more danger than he was before? Is he in more danger now that he's in the palace than, was he, than when he was, say, in the prison? And I guess it depends on how you look at him, where he is now. If you're thinking purely physically, then of course not. Joseph's made it. He's the man. He's got to the top. He's done so well. Phenomenal, Joseph. I want to be like Joseph. I want to have all that Joseph has. If that's how you're thinking, then fine absolutely fine. He is in no danger at all. But thinking spiritually, where Joseph has now come to, to the top, with all that power, with all that opportunity, with all that independence, out of prison, Joseph now faces another challenge, another test to his faith. With Potiphar's wife, and the temptation was, do I sleep with her and just enjoy myself? I mean, my life is hard. In prison, when he hears that his fellow inmates have had dreams. He might have thought, well, why bother maintaining my faith and my hope in God when look at what that's gotten me. Here I am in prison. And now out of prison, now free of worry, free of problems, free of pain. I guess a lesser man 
in that sort of situation, that prosperous pagan Egyptian culture, a lesser man would have forgotten God and would have given himself over to his new lifestyle, his new role, his new ambitions, and so forth. Because when you're in Egypt, you know, come on, you get on like the Egyptians. You see, it's one thing to hold on to God and to have hope in God in times of need when you're in the proverbial pit or the prison house of life and you're very aware of your needs. Your hope is evidently in God and so in your need you pray more to God because you need God more. You've, you know that, you feel that. But when God lifts you out of that pit and brings you into the proverbial palace and needs don't appear so great and your health is good and your wealth is okay, is my hope still in God? Is my awareness of my dependency upon him still as strong for me sat here in my silk pajamas as it was when I sat, say, in my prison overalls, clutching the bills and wondering, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to feed the kids tonight? That's the challenge for any of us who are, as it were, like Joseph here, at the top. Can I still honor my God at the top? Can I still represent the Lord Jesus Christ as an executive? as a team leader, as a senior manager? Can I still honor Christ as an expert in the field where people are looking to me and thinking highly of me and maybe are under me because I'm now their boss? Can I honor Christ in the palace as I did when I was in the pit? That's, in a sense, one of the reasons why the position of elder shouldn't be filled by a recent convert, Paul tells us. Someone young in the faith shouldn't be given that level of authority and that level of spotlight in a church. 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 tells us, or he may become puffed up with conceit. He might become proud and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Maybe now, having come through the whole chapter, we look back and we think, why did God keep Joseph in prison for two more years? Maybe this was why wasn't ready yet to handle all this power and authority. wasn't ready to cope at being so high and overall. He wasn't ready yet. So God kept him humble, kept him in the oven, as it were, until the time was right. Well, thirdly and finally this morning, so how does Joseph respond to all of this? Well, twice we're told, verses 45 and 46, that he went out over the land. He got stuck into the work, did Joseph. I mean, imagine someone at that pinnacle of power. He could have sent out his servants to do the work. He could have remained at the office desk, as it were, and from a distance sent out all the orders to the regional overseers and all of that, rather than get stuck in himself and whatever. Could have gone to his head all of this power and said, could somebody else do all the sweaty work and, uh, and I'll just sit here in my fine linen and just enjoy all of this. There was once the Duke of Somerset, Charles Seymour, the sixth Duke of Somerset, who was so proud, so vain, so full of himself as a Duke, so highly thought of himself having come to that title. He was called the Proud Duke. He's described as being a man in whom the pride of birth and rank amounted almost to a disease. This man was so haughty, so proud, he wouldn't condescend to even verbalize instructions to his servants. He would just use his hand 
and point and sign language and to do things for him. Not to Joseph. Power has not gone to Joseph's head. Even with all the authority that's been given to him, he didn't wait to be served, but went out and served others and became, as it were, a savior for Egypt. And look to it, the names of his two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. God blesses Joseph and Asenath with, with two sons. But look, Joseph doesn't give them Egyptian names with pagan meanings because he's now in Egypt and everything's so Egyptian. He doesn't do that. He gives them Hebrew names. Manasseh means he who causes to forget. For verse 51, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my family's house. This boy coming into Joseph's life was healing for Joseph. God brightened Joseph's life with Manasseh. After all he had been through, this was clearly a blessing from God. And Ephraim means fertile. For verse 52, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph gives his sons Hebrew names, even though he himself has an Egyptian name. His wife is an Egyptian with an Egyptian name. But Joseph chooses, chooses Hebrew names for both his sons. And for both his sons, it's God who is the reason. Not Ray, the sun god, or Heath, the goddess. God for God. So Joseph may have forgotten the pain of his past, but he hasn't forgotten his past altogether. There in pagan Egypt, he hasn't forgotten the God of his covenant family, the God who had spoke to his great-grandfather Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. But Joseph had remained part of the covenant family of God. It reminds us of what the apostle Paul writes to believers in Rome, heavily pagan Rome. And he says this in Romans 12, verse 2. This is J.B. Phillips' translation. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good. That's what Joseph's doing there in Egypt. He refuses to be pressed into the Egyptian mold. Whether he was in the pit or in the palace or right at the top, he remains part of God's covenant family. And finally, we're told in those closing summary verses 56 and 57 that when the famine finally does begin, and we're told twice it's severe, it's a bad famine, Joseph opens the storehouses and he begins to sell grain to the Egyptians. In fact, we're told, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And as you think about that word, all the earth, and you think of what God had promised Abraham, do you remember? Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here we have in Joseph the first fulfillment of that. Here is Joseph being a savior to a world in great need. It's interesting how when the people come to Pharaoh and they, they have a need, they have a problem, what does Pharaoh say? Go to Jesus and do what he says. Where have we heard that before? We looked at that recently or fairly recently in our Mark's Gospel. There was a wedding in Cana and there was a great need. And so they said to Mary, what will we do? And Mary said to the servants, do everything Jesus tells you to do. And Jesus provided for their need. And here with this need, Pharaoh says, go to Joseph and do everything he tells you to do. And they come to Joseph. This is someone who has made provision 
for their spiritual hunger. And Christ, has he not? Is he not the greater Savior? Has he not provided for our great need? This gentle, lowly Savior who, though he was rich, though he was on the top, though he were God, yet did not insist on his divine rights as God, and yet for our sake he humbled himself and became poor. He humbled himself and became as one of us. And he humbled himself again and went to the cross to make provision for our need, our famine, the famine of our soul. He went and there he died on that cross to atone for all our sin. Friends, the storehouse of Jesus Christ is full. It's bursting. You imagine the grain coming through the cracks. It's so full. It's so full that whoever in the whole earth is hungry may come to him by faith and eat and live. They shall not die. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Joseph and the man you made him. We thank you, Lord, for his humility, for his boldness. Lord, we thank you for his consistency. And in those things we see in Joseph, we thank you that we see in the greater Joseph them perfected in every way. We see in Jesus Christ the truly humble, bold Savior of the world. Father, thank you that you have given Christ to us. And thank you, Jesus Christ, that you have indeed provided all that we need. We simply have to believe and come to you, and you will feed us. So Lord, help us then this morning. Those of us who don't know you, who are still hungry inside, and we don't know what, we know there's something not right about us. We're not settled. We're, we're discontented. Lord, help us to see what that is, and to bring that emptiness to the only one who can fill us, Jesus Christ. Help us to do that today, for the doors of his barn are open, and all may come. Help us, we pray, Lord, for we ask in his name. Amen.